Right, if we uh, if you turn to, to Luke chapter 2, we continue with the, the story of the nativity in the order in which it happened. Christmas looming ever larger. And uh, Luke, Luke chapter 2, and starting from, from verse 1, and, and now we actually come to the birth of Jesus. So we've seen that both Mary and Joseph now know what's going on, that Mary is pregnant <coughs> through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that a, a virgin birth is looming. Right. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So that would have included all the nations that Rome occupied, so obviously it included Israel as well. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So, so here we, we actually have the birth of Jesus, happening at a time when Mary and Joseph have had to go together to Jerusalem, sorry, Bethlehem, in order to register in this census. And Bethlehem, you know, because that's where Joseph's descendants came from and so that would have been his as it were signing on point and uh, so Jesus is born and notice that with this birth I mean it's 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 initially very ordinary I mean you know it's, it's just a birth and we have to at this point get rid of all the romantic Christmas card pictures that we've got in our mind. Certainly the idea of snow lying around, <laughs> you know. We've got to get rid of all that and uh, to really see the truth here. That God, the second person of the Trinity, having taken upon himself to become a human being and to do it from stage one, so a developing fetus in Mary's womb, and then about to be born as a baby. The circumstances in which it happens is that it's on a night where Mary and Joseph are away from home, have been unable to get a place in the inn, our equivalent today would be bed and breakfast or whatever, and they're in a stable. They're in a dark, wet, cold, smelly, dirty stable. And it was there that Jesus was born. And there is nothing romantic in that at all. 
And it's a lovely picture of the life that Jesus had in front of him. This birth really did suit his life. You can't get a lower beginning than this. And Jesus' death was even lower. It was the death of a criminal on a cross. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that here she's, um, she wraps him up and lays him in a manger. Now I don't know if you actually, does anyone know what a manger is? That, yeah, that's right, that's right. But that isn't foremost in our minds. I mean, we sing it, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. But the truth is, she's just had this baby, and the baby, Jesus, is sleeping in the trough that the cattle eat. So they, they've cleared the trough out, all the whatever muck was in the trough, and Jesus is asleep in the trough. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a horrible picture. I mean, it certainly, it, it certainly isn't what you know, we're used to in this day and age in the civilised West. This is a pretty, you know, sort of mucky situation. But Jesus came into a very mucky world to do a very mucky job, and that was to deal with our muck, the muck of our hearts, our sin. And also the fact that there wasn't any room in the inn. I mean, you know, there was, here was the creator of the universe coming amongst his own people, becoming a human being. And there was no room for him anywhere. He ended up in the animal stable, sleeping in the trough. And that is the story of Jesus' experience in the world. There isn't any room for him in the world. You know, sort of people don't have room for Jesus in their hearts. And one of the reasons is that if he does move in, he, he wants to take up all the room. And, and, and so instinctively, people knowing it's all or nothing with Jesus say it's, it's going to be nothing. And he was despised and rejected by men. There was no room for him. In Hebrews, the writer homes in on the fact that even in Jesus' death, it was outside the city gate where all the uncleanness was on the city rubbish dump. And, 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 and Jesus' life here, his birth, is as he died. The outsider rejected in the muck. But that's what he came to do. It's all the picture of the life that he was going to lead and the ministry, if you like, that he was called to. And so we've got to get rid of the picture postcard romantic notions in regards to it all. It wasn't like that at all. It was a very mucky affair. And uh, let's, let's, let's carry on reading now from verse 8. As now we see the supernatural burst through now. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. 
This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger in the animal's eating trough. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Now, just notice a contrast here. This is possibly romantic. In fact, more than that, I would say this is. Now, suddenly, the angelic host you know, I, I mean, here are the shepherds, and, and can you imagine, I mean, this would have been, you know, sort of like the climax of a Steven Spielberg movie. In fact, probably Steven Spielberg could not create the grandeur of a film that we've got here. The angelic host, can you imagine the glory that was shining around that field as all these angels are there praising God? Whilst the God that they were praising is where? In a trough, in a stable. Can you see this incredible contrast? This is the glory that, 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 that Jesus lay aside in heaven to become a human being. This, this is what he left behind. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart and pondered them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, why is it, do you think, that immediately at the birth of Jesus, the angels decide to announce it to shepherds of all people? Oh, I think there's a great, you know, sort of truth in the sense that you couldn't have got a more ordinary Joe than a shepherd. I mean, yeah, that Jesus came for the ordinary man, not, not, not the great and the good, all right, but he just came for men and women, just standard plebs, and there's a point to be made in that. But there's something more significant, and I thank Andy for this in the Bible study he did one Wednesday night a few weeks ago, because I hadn't realised it until he drew my attention to it. And it's the fact that, that these guys here, they were shepherds, but the flock they were caring for was a very special one. The animals that were used for sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem were reared in Bethlehem, just outside in the fields. Now, so these were the shepherds who were tending the sacrifices, the lamb sacrifices for the temple. And there's a significance. Because this little baby who was born was indeed, as John the Baptist was to say 30 years later, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the point is that these guys, what were they doing? They were responsible before God and man for tending the sacrifices that were to atone for sin before God. Therefore, it was right and fitting that they were the first to go and attend Jesus because he was the ultimate sacrifice to atone for sin. And so that is why the angels appear to the shepherds 
it's absolutely amazing and look at what they you know the angels actually say first of all they say look a savior first and foremost I mean goes on to say a savior has been born to you he is Christ the Lord so we see that he's Messiah and he's the Lord of glory but first and foremost in his birth he's savior because Jesus was the Lord of glory before he became a human being but to be a savior he had to become a human being and in the birth of Jesus the savior was coming the one who was going to become the muck of the world that he came to save us from as Paul says in Corinthians God made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we in him might become the righteousness of God so again you're back to this picture Jesus lying there in the muck of a trough in a stable he was the saviour he came to deal with the problem of sin and they say to him that um, glory to, to God in the highest so the shepherds are hearing you know, the angels saying these things and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests or as it's better known peace on earth and goodwill towards men and of course the point is that, that it's God saying I want peace with men and I have good will towards you so the important thing to see in this enmity that man had against God lost in his sin in rebellion against God all the time God has good will towards us had it towards us before we were saved or anything there was peace in God's heart towards us always was there's no fight on his side the battle the fight is in man's heart against him and so can you see here that the sin is dealt with from God's side in Jesus being born it's God who as it were extending the hand of friendship and saying come on look let's bury the hatchet let's be friends and of course the death of Jesus on the cross cleared away the problem of sin so that, that could happen but what you've got here isn't the, the you know kind of like the angry God who, who just wants to judge and condemn the human race he doesn't he doesn't at all insofar as men and women will not turn from sin they will be condemned of course God's justice means that must occur but all the time God had planned a way for people to be set free from it and so here what the angels are saying look God his when he thinks of the human race even with it being lost in sin and rebellious against it he harbors only goodwill towards mankind and he wants to be friends and the coming of this baby the coming of this savior was going to be the means whereby sin could be dealt with and the righteousness the justice the holiness of God is satisfied and not compromised and therefore the desire of God's heart could happen that a way was there so that we could have fellowship with him and be his friends and so in the birth of Jesus you literally have God saying will you be my friend 
And this is the way that I'm going to make that viable. There is a way for you to be friends. And can you see, that is the contrast to any idea of an angry God. You know, and so, you know, often this picture we have, even after we're saved, this idea of sort of like, you know, that God the Father is sort of like, is all kind of anger and thunderbolts, isn't he? And he's itching to get his hands on us. But there's Jesus, our mediator, kind of like, you know, holding him off. Oh, no, Father, don't, don't zap them because, you know, they've believed on me. And I was, you know, God's itching to get his hands on me, but he can't because Jesus is preventing him. And this almost paints a picture that there's a division in the Trinity. You know, that Jesus represents love and acceptance of us, and the Father represents, oh, let me sort them out, I just want to damn them. It's not like that at all. It was the goodwill to all men in God the Father's heart. It was the peace in his heart towards all men that meant that Jesus came. The whole plan of salvation was Father's idea. Jesus was the means by which it happened, but it was the idea of the Father. And so in his heart. Now, if there was peace in his heart towards us before we were saved, albeit, obviously, had we died without the Lord, we'd be judged, of course. But the point was, if there was peace in his heart towards us while we were yet lost, how much more is the peace in his heart towards us now that we're saved and washed in the blood of Jesus? And it's like that prophecy tonight. You know, when the Lord hears our worship and hears our prayers, he, he looks down on a, a pure love. Now, for heaven's sake, we know our love isn't pure, don't we? But once it's gone through what Robert always used to call the heavenly filter, you know, it gets washed in the blood of Jesus on the way up. By the time it's there, it's, it's perfect. It's absolutely pure. It is the righteousness of God coming out of us. So how much more, how much is God full of peace in his heart towards us? Any battle going on, it's not because God's got a fight with us. The fight is, is always in us. You know, God is completely at peace. All he wants is to be friends. Yeah, our Lord, our Master, of course. But do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, a servant, so a master doesn't tell his servants what he's doing. And he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. That's the relationship that God wants towards us. He wants us to be his friends. And that is what the angels are announcing here. And so after all this, they, they say to themselves, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. The wisest thing they could have possibly done. And that is man's duty summed up. It is to go and to find Jesus. And once you've found him, to tend to him, as these men were the flock of the sacrifices. That is our whole duty, to find Jesus and then to serve him, to wait on him, to tend him in whatever way he demands. That is what life is about. That is why we've been put on this planet. So they were dead right in this. And of course, through this, we know that they were all saved. If they weren't before the angels appeared, they were by the time they got to the stable. Because they were going off to find this saviour that the angels had told them about. So there, the shepherds do what people should be doing and what we're here to do. In the same way that the angels announce the good news to the shepherds, 
we as the church are here to announce the good news to unbelievers so that they too say, wow, I want to go and see this thing for myself. So, I mean, you know, there's a kind of another kind of comparison there because, I mean, the fact they saw the glory of the angels, they thought, wow, have some of that. Now, in actual fact, the Bible says that, that we actually can give out, project, reflect the glory of God as well. As much as those angels did, we can do it. And if we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, then it ought to be that people see us, and as they get to know us, they say, wow, I'll have some of that, please. Now, others, they might see the glory of God in us, and their response will be, it's the last thing I want. All right. But as long as they're seeing the glory of God, as long as they're hitting up against the life of Jesus in us. Right, okay. Um, still in Luke, and uh, now we, we carry on from verse 21. And we'll be skipping back over to Matthew in just a minute. So, um, Luke and verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. So now we're eight days after the birth of Jesus and he's circumcised and that's when he's named Jesus. And of course Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, as the actual Hebrew word means, God is saviour. Because the angels had announced a saviour is born for you this day and so his name is saviour as well. So there we have the naming of Jesus. Right, then we carry on uh, from, from verse 22. When the time of purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Do you remember that goes back to the Passover and because uh, all, you know, all the firstborn, the death of the firstborn in Egypt and so therefore because the firstborn was spared from the judgment of God therefore all the firstborn in Israel had to be specifically given to the Lord and when we were doing that in the Bible surveys remember we saw the principle that anything that has been saved anything that has been spared the judgment of the Lord belonged with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves or two young pigeons now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a lovely name for the coming Messiah, the consolation of Israel. Uh, the consolation, in the Greek, you know, you know, with, think of a console, if you sort of like, you know, sort of got say, uh, you know, an aeroplane or something, you, or even a car, you've got all these buttons and switches and that, and they've all got to be held in place. The console is what holds them in place. If you, if you had all the switches and the buttons but took the console away, you'd just have a mass of wires and switches and buttons on the floor. A console is what holds everything together. And, you know, and of course the point is that Jesus being the consolation of Israel, he's the one who holds it all together. I mean, it's like if we console each other. I mean, if you need consoling, all right, then that means that you're, you're falling to bits something has happened and you're really affected, you're falling. To console you means that, that you know, that someone moves in and holds you in place because you're kind of flopping around all over the place. And, and you know, here's this 
marvellous phrase here, you know, for the one who was going to come and save Israel, the consolation of Israel, that, you know, Messiah was going to come and he was going to hold everything together and make it right. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this, this guy, he actually knew, he'd actually received personal guidance from the Lord that he was actually going to see the Messiah. And he was waiting, he was waiting. And um, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, and this is a prophecy, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother, like Mary and Joseph, marvelled at what was said about him. I mean, you know, they've had everything that happened with the shepherds coming and telling them about the angels and all that. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was then a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the, redemp to the redemption of Jerusalem. So what's happening here now is that Jesus is taken to the temple to be presented to the Lord as required in the law. And this was done 40 days after his birth. So we've had his birth in the stable, then eight days later he's circumcised, and now 32 days later they take him into the temple in Jerusalem, which was um, from Bethlehem, was uh, about five miles away. So, I mean, it wasn't a very long journey, so, you know, I mean, they'd have done that in a day easily. And, um, and according to the law of Moses, the sacrifices that they had to make was either a lamb along with a bird, which could either be a pigeon or a dove, all right? Or, if you were too poor to bring a lamb, then the sacrifice was either a couple of pigeons or a couple of doves. So you left the lamb out, because pigeons and doves were cheap. Lambs weren't. And here it specifically says that the, the um, uh, sacrifice that they make is two doves and two pigeons. So we know from this that, you know, sort of Jesus was born into a family who, who weren't rich. I mean, you know, that they were like, you know, the, the poorer section, if you like. And, um, and then we come on to this guy, you know, Simeon, this, this, this story. And, and it's amazing, because I mean, he, he's there waiting for the Christ to appear.
And, uh, but it's marvellous, this prayer that he prays in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things that he says, is he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And what he's proclaiming there, very, very clearly, is that this light who has now come into the world, the Christ child, is not just for Israel, but that he was going to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, as it says in the King James Version translation of this. So there you've got, right at the birth of Jesus, a very clear sort of, you know, pointing out that Jesus was not just the saviour of Israel. He was in fact the saviour of the whole world. And when John the Baptist, you know, sort of spoke about him, it was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not the sins of Israel, but the sins of the world, Israel and the Gentiles as well. And so here we have all surrounding the birth of Jesus, all the time it being proclaimed that what this little baby was coming to do was going to affect not just Israel, because remember at this time the Israelites, I mean they didn't believe that God could have anything to do with Gentiles, you know, I, I mean the true believers like Simeon, they understood, but your average Jew looked down his nose on Gentiles, wouldn't have given them the time of day, you know, God wasn't interested in Gentiles or anything like that, and yet here we see clearly that right at the birth of Jesus it's being proclaimed that this is not just for Israel, it's for the Gentiles as well. And what he then goes on to, to say to Mary is uh, quite amazing. I mean, it says that he blesses them. And look what he says, and this is quite amazing. He says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword <coughs> will pierce your own soul too. So he's saying, what's going to happen as this, your child, grows as the Messiah and grows up and starts the work that he's been sent to do? Is that he's going to have one of two effects on people. He's going to cause them to fall, i.e. he's going to be a stumbling block that they'll trip over, or he's going to be the means of them rising. So that what we've got here is that it's been said, and quite rightly, that the gospel is bad news before it's good news. And it has to be bad news because it's good news, because if you don't know the bad news, the good news doesn't make any sense. The bad news is that you're heading for lake of fire, and that is what you deserve. The good news is that through Jesus, there's a way of escape for you so that you don't have to end up in the lake of fire. You can receive the free gift of salvation through the Lord. So the point is that a relationship with Jesus needs to all the time be starting on the level of conviction of sin because the problem is sin. This is why Jesus, he always preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The problem is sin. And so the point is that when proud people were to hit, hit up against Jesus, pride goes before a fall. He would be the rock over which they'd stumble and fall flat on their faces. Now, even those who are going to end up following him and whom he exalts, the point is, and we all know this, if indeed we are raised up with Christ in heavenly places, which we are, it's only because 
we've come there having gone flat on our faces before him crying out for mercy can you see the point so in order to follow the Lord you've got these two positions there's the tripping over him flat on your face in the mud in repentance of sin and then the being raised up with him in heavenly places but of course the point is that for many who trip over him they never get up out of the mud they never want to follow him they trip up over him but they never take that next step so therefore if you're to rise in Jesus you've got to fall first but the tragedy is that there are many who fall but they never rise they just hit up against Jesus and that's it they never get beyond that you know sort of like you know they will not come clean about sin in any way at all and look what he says and to be a sign that will be spoken against so Jesus came specifically to be spoken against that was part of the ministry he had so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed now that is amazing what are we talking about here I've spoken about this in times past that the point is here that, that, that I mean if God is doing something Satan wants to stop it and he'll always do that through using the undealt with sin in people's lives surrounding what God is doing and yet all the time though Satan's doing that God is simply using Satan to expose the sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting people of it's up to them if they repent now the point was again and again people spoke against Jesus it was Satan coming through them to go against him but what was it as they spoke against him the very sin that Jesus came to save them from the very sin that they denied they have was being exposed in all its horrific horror so that no one could miss it and can you see Jesus was almost the magnet that drew sin out of people so it became obvious i.e. you couldn't be neutral about Jesus when people met him it was one thing or t'other it wasn't a neutrality it was either they were with him or they spoke against him and in speaking against him as so many people did they simply revealed the condition of their own hearts and proved that the very words that Jesus was speaking were true because it was that sin in their hearts that's coming out against him that God wanted to save them from that's why Jesus came and to a certain extent we find this ourselves this is all tied up with sharing the sufferings of Jesus Jesus was despised and rejected as of, of men for this reason conviction of sin now if we share his sufferings we're going to experience that as well that we're going to end up the butt of people's undealt with sin but that's that's the way it is we're called to that in the same way that Jesus was and then he goes on to say to Mary and a sword will pierce your own soul too and you've only got to look at the, the story of Jesus from this point onwards from Mary's point of view and, and a sword did pierce her own soul the way she saw her son die and, and also the way that she wavered it's quite clear that, that Mary knew exactly who Jesus was but there were other times when she doubted and, 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 and Jesus' family, the brothers and sisters that he had later on as Mary and Joseph um, had their own children they didn't believe in him I mean fortunately they did later but they didn't at first and 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 it, it would have been very very difficult for Mary you can see being the mother of, of Jesus I mean on, on one hand she could never work him out um, and, and yet she saw him 
being rejected and ultimately dying on a cross. And you remember that, that virtually his last words on the cross were he handed Mary over to John so that John could take her home and look after her. You know, I mean, Jesus loved her so very much and yet on the other hand couldn't perhaps give to her what other sons could give their mothers precisely because his father wasn't Mary's husband and uh, Jesus was on business that at the end of the day Mary really couldn't share in and uh, so it was hard for Mary and in exactly the same way she gave birth to Jesus and she suffered for it and going back to the imagery that we were talking about last week that if by faith if we give birth to Jesus in our lives you know like him being born in us today as the carol says, if we give birth to him in our lives, then like Mary, we're going to find a sword will pierce our own souls as well. Because to give birth to Jesus is to share in the suffering and the hurt and the rejection that we were just talking about. And then no sooner had uh, Simeon finished doing his bit, this is all in the temple, on the 40th day after Jesus was born, when uh, Anna, the daughter of Faneuil, pounces and she was a prophetess, uh, acknowledged, I mean she'd have been known by the priests and everyone that she was someone through whom God spoke and uh, she actually lived in the temple which, which seems a bit odd until you realise that the temple had various living quarters and she had obviously been given a living quarter in the temple so she literally never left it day or night, she lived in the temple and that and, um, and of course she knew exactly who Jesus was and, 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 and she comes up and, and, and gave thanks to God and spoke about the child and so Mary and Joseph are just being surrounded pounced on by, by all these people being led by God exalting who Jesus was confirming everything about him and confirming the suffering as well that was going to be his experience uh, later on in life right now we flick over to Matthew 2 to continue with the chronology. Matthew chapter 2 and we're going to read the first 12 verses. And here we have the visit of the Magi or wise men. Magi being the better translation. Right after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where is the one who has been born King of the Jews we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him when King Herod heard this he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now that's Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 and they knew full well that that was a prophecy in the Old Testament given hundreds of years before that prophesied where Messiah was going to be born. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Of course, this was an absolute trick. He was deceiving them rotten. After they had heard the king, I mean, he wanted to kill Jesus. I mean, speech smooth as butter, but war was in their hearts. It's amazing. Uh, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. See, they knew he was gone. Then, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense and myrrh. And it's because there are three gifts mentioned, that this legend that there were three of them came about. You know, I mean, there weren't three of them, it doesn't say how many there are. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So here we have the visit of the Magi, the wise men. Now, what we've got to, 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 to ask is, who are these guys? And we'll sort that out in one second. But the next thing to realise, all right, is that because we're seeing the whole chronology of this, the timing. And again, on Christmas cards, you get, you know, like this stable, although it's like a picturesque, beautiful house, isn't it? And you get the star and you get the, the shepherds, and you get the angels in the background, you get the wise men there. You know, all happening at once. Now, that, that's not how it happened at all. This, the visit of the Magi, happens months later, even a couple of years later. It is much, much later. Notice, Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, all right? Whereas now, the Magi come to a house. <laughs> you see that? They don't come to a stable, they come to a house. And Jesus, who thus far has been referred to as the baby, is the child. You see, this is much later. I mean, you know, I mean, sort of like, we tend to telescope the, the story so it all kind of pushes together. But this is, in actual fact, quite a long time later. So, so Jesus is more a little boy here, more a little Samuel as it were, Stephen, Sue, Samuel, rather than a little baby. Right, so, so who are these wise men? Well, the key to that, keep your finger in Matthew, but the key to this is found if you go to the book of Daniel. Just, just get Daniel chapter 1. Because the thing to realise is that the, these magi, alright, they came from the east, alright? Now, where was east? you know, if you head east into Jerusalem. Well, if you do, you come out to Persia and uh, Medea, or Medea ended up taken over by Persia. And that what you've got here, all right, is that, that, that magi, the Greek word here, is, is a word that was used for two classes or two types of people. It was used in a general sense of occultists in general. So astrologers, occultists, sorcerers, wizards, blah, blah, blah. It was a general term, all right, that covered all that. But also it was a term for a very specific group of people who were well known over the then, world, uh, the then known world. And uh, in Daniel chapter 1, we can actually see who they are. I'm having a bit of a job finding Daniel here. Ah, there he is. Now then, Daniel 1, 
and just find verse 20. Now, what's happened here is that this is at the point where Israel has been carted off, or in fact not Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. Israel is long gone. They've been carted off by Assyria a hundred years early, earlier. Now the southern kingdom, Judah, is being carted off into, you know, sort of captivity um, by the Babylonians. All right. Now the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians, so you're dealing with the same kind of general area you know, sort of geographically. Now, in chapter 20, this is just talking um, about Nebuchadnezzar, and it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now, this is about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, four Jews who were taken into captivity. And the king finds that turning to them for answers to problems and interpreting dreams was better than turning to his magicians and enchanters. And magicians there, magi, magician. Or in some translations, wise men. Now just go to chapter 2, and in verse 2, so the king summoned the magicians, sorry, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Now, it was, it was a cast of, you know, of various men, all right, who, who formed this group in the kingdom. And the king turned to them for advice on matters religious and spiritual and to do with the future. Then go down into verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. These astrologers, sorcerers, magicians couldn't tell him what his dream was. So a decree went out to put the wise men to death. So that's another name for them, the wise men. This group of people were known as wise men. Magi, sorcerers, enchanters, all under one heading, the wise men, the magi. And that was the name that stuck. So when you spoke about magi, now, you were either talking about just an occultist in general. Remember in the Acts of the Apostles, the early church comes up against Simon Bar-Jesus, and he was a magi. He was an, a, a, a sorcerer, occultist, all right. But the guys, the magi who come from the East, they were Gentiles, and it was well known who they were. They were part of the cast of these wise men whom here we're seeing, you know, sort of who were around for 500 years earlier. Now we go down into verse 48 and we read this. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men, or magi. Daniel, who was a believer, was appointed by the king to be in charge of the magi, who at that point were all demonic occultists. But he was a believer. He knew the Lord. And what's interesting is that in Daniel chapter 9, you get the prophecy known as the 70 weeks, which I can't go into now, but it's the prophecy that foretells the date of the coming of Messiah. 
and Jesus was spot on. The birth of Jesus was absolutely spot on to the very year. So who are these Magi? They are the wise men from Persia who, though being Magi, aren't the occultists. They're the believing strain in the tradition of Daniel. So from the time of Daniel onwards, the Magi were made up of two subgroups, the occultist demonic Magi and the believers Magi. After Daniel, these are believers. So all these hundreds of years later, the testimony of Daniel is still going strong. People are still believing, knowing the Lord, some of the Magi. Okay, and they've got the prophecy about the 70 weeks, and they knew that literally any day now, Messiah is going to be born. And clearly the star was simply, when they saw that, somehow they knew, right, now we're getting the go-ahead. You know, this is the moment, off we go. And they followed that star, which I think very possibly was an angel. Various theories about conjunctions of planets. Um, I find that difficult because the star actually rested eventually over the very house where Jesus was. I think it was an angel and, and, and of course in the Bible angels are often called stars. And it might have looked like a star, they might not have known it was an angel, it looked like a star, but you know, nevertheless they followed that star and they got um, to the city and then they go to Herod you know, quite normal thing to do, to go to the existing king and say, can you give us any directions from here on in? And of course Herod, you know, deceives them absolutely up to their eyeballs, all right? And as uh, so they go to Herod, this, this guy Herod, at, you know, sort of incidentally, he, he was king um, in Jerusalem at the time. He wasn't Jewish, he was an Idumean, all right, from Idumea. Um, and and he, he'd been uh, put in Jerusalem as king over the Jews in around 40 BC. The Roman Senate placed him there. And he, he was a nasty character. He murdered his wife and three children, uh, along with various aunts, uncles, and things like that. I mean, he, you know, he murdered most of his own family because he was so paranoid all the time that they were plotting against him. And he literally killed his whole family one by one over the years. He was a dreadful, dreadful character. But he was a great builder. He was the one who was rebuilding Jericho. And also he was the one who had built the temple that was in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. That was him who was doing that. So he was a great builder, but he was a, a you know, really kind of horrible bloke. And, uh, you know, you imagine how paranoid he gets about Jesus when the Magi come. And he knew full well who the Magi were. And immediately he turns to his own, you know, kind of like priest, his equivalent of his Magi, you know, where, where's Messiah going to be born? His problem wasn't that he didn't believe. He knew full well that Jesus was Messiah. He didn't want any competition. That was his problem. And, uh, you know, so he was deceiving the wise men up to the eyeballs. He said, well, okay, you know, go and find him. And when you found him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship. And, you know, and of course, really wanted to, to go and, and kill him and that. And, uh, you know, so, you know, sort of like the Magi, you know, I mean, they think Herod's a good bloke. And, you know, so they leave him. And it's interesting because it says, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them. And it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, there's something interesting there. They've come all the way from Persia, which was in the east. Now, when it talks about they saw the star in the east, it doesn't mean the star was in the east. The star was in the west. But they saw the star when they were in the east. 
I just chuck that in because if you ever read this in detail, you'll end up very confused about that. I did for Yonks. It's not that the star was in the east. When it says they saw the star in the east, they saw the star they were in the east. The star was in the west. They came from the east. Anyway, I'll leave, leave that there. But the point is, they followed this star for miles and miles. They've been travelling maybe for weeks. And they see the star. And then they go into Herod. And Herod deceives them, but they don't know it. When they come out from him, they see the star again and they're overjoyed. Now, it was only a bit later that they realised that Herod had lied to them. But what that tells to me, we all know, don't we, I, I know that I do, when I lose sight of that star, and it's because I'm with Herod, it's because Satan's deceiving me about something. Do you know when, when the joy, the hope, it, it's all bleh, it's gone. And then suddenly it's back, you see the star again and you're overjoyed, but it's because you're with Herod. You see, they couldn't see the star when they were with Herod. And whenever you lose that hope, it's because Satan's deceiving you. You're listening. However, you know, kind of like viable, you know, the thoughts are that are coming, however right and maybe even biblical they might seem, because Herod came over as a really responsible, believing king of the Jews. The point is it's Satan deceiving you. And it was when they left him that they saw the star again and they were overjoyed. And then, of course, they followed it actually to, to the house. And, uh, you know, and there they worshipped Jesus and gave him the gifts that they'd bought for him. Right, now we continue in, in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So, sorry, it ends saying, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned. So the Magi, God speaks to them in a dream and they know that they're not to go and tell Herod where Jesus was. So, Right, when they had gone, I, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This was Joseph's staple way of getting guidance, by the way. It was through dreams. That was just the way God dealt with, with him. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. We'll be back to that in a moment. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So what you've got here, Herod realises that he's been tricked, okay? So what he does is that, 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 that he, he orders all the female boys under two years old in the area... Boys. Sorry. All, <laughs> all the two-year-old boys, that's right. All the boys, the males, two years old and under, in the area of Bethlehem, because Ramah was in the area, it was like, you know, the wider area, so Bethlehem was in Ramah, all right? So the whole area would be, you know, sort of like taken care of. And, uh, you know, to make sure that this Messiah, this one who was going to be the king of the Jews, is killed. And so he sent in his soldiers. It's easy to end up thinking that thousands and thousands 
died in this. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been thousands and thousands because the population that you'd have been dealing with is too small. But of course, that doesn't make the crime any less awful. You know, I mean, killing all these young boys, and uh, you know, because he didn't want to have competition for the throne. And uh, but of course, the point is that the angel has appeared to Joseph and he says, "Go to Egypt." So literally they escape and they leave Israel completely and go down into Egypt. And of course the point is that the gifts that the wise men brought, the gold, frankincense and myrrh, that was valuable stuff. That was financing them for this flight to Egypt. Interesting, you see? It was God providing for them. They lived off of the proceeds of that for quite a long time. And, um, and it it says here about, and so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, that, that's Matthew quoting um, from Hosea, chapter 11 and verse 1. And if you read it, although we won't actually turn to it now, it refers in Hosea to the coming out of Egypt of Israel through Moses. So the verse in context in Hosea refers back to Moses bringing the nation out of Egypt. And here, it's applied to Jesus, who's gone into Egypt, and then once it was safe, comes out of Egypt. And of course, Israel, as a nation, when it was an infant, went to Egypt and came out. Jesus, as an infant, went to Egypt and came out. And what Matthew is doing here is that he's He's using Jesus as almost a personification of the history of Israel. That how the nation of Israel was born. Jesus' birth becomes a direct parallel for that. Because, of course, Israel corporately was God's son. You get that in Hosea as well. That God referred to the nation, not individuals in it, but God referred to the nation of Israel as his son. And of course, even the nation of Israel was ultimately a picture of Jesus, who was literally God's son. And so you've got Matthew there drawing a parallel, a picture between the birth of Israel as a nation, as God's son, and the birth of God's literal son, Jesus. Here, he went into Egypt to escape, and then was called out of Egypt. And, um, and then this thing... Um, a voice is heard in Rama. That, of course, is from Jeremiah, um, chapter 31 and verse 15. And uh, that was the prophecy of what was happening here. And uh, I think the reason that it talks about Rachel weeping for her children um, is that Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife. You remember Jacob ended up with two, two wives and two concubines. Out of the four women he ended up with, Rachel was the one that he loved. You remember, he was swindled out of her to start with. Rachel was the one that he loved. And she was the grandmother of Ephraim and Manasseh, either sons of Joseph. And they emerged as being the two strongest and most powerful tribes in the northern kingdom, who, you know, sort of like eventually got carted off into um, Assyria. And in some ways, her, her name here is representing a personification of the whole of Israel. You know, so it's a picture here that, that what, you know, the events that are transpiring now, that the whole of Israel is going to end up mourning what happened. Because, I mean, you know, obviously children being killed. And then you follow it through 
that, that Israel, the nation, ended up killing Jesus as an adult. But he was the infant that Herod was trying to kill here. So can you see, Herod missed. What Satan tried to do through Herod, he was able to do through the nation of Israel when Jesus was an adult. And of course, can you see the spiritual warfare going on here? Obviously, throughout the whole of the Old Testament times, Satan was trying to destroy Israel as a nation because he knew Messiah was going to be a Jew. It went back earlier than that. From the Garden of Eden, Satan knew that Messiah was going to be a human being. So that's why you got the bit before the time of Noah when the angels took on human form and came up with this genetic mismatch, you know, half angel, half man. I mean, the first stage was that if Satan could have got shot of mankind and got a mutant breed, that would have done the job because Messiah had to be human. But it didn't work, Satan blew it. Then, right, I'll destroy Israel because the Messiah is going to be a Jewish man, all right? And so throughout the Old Testament, there you've got Satan trying to destroy Israel. But of course now, Messiah is born. It's too late to worry about destroying Israel. Now, Satan homes in on killing Messiah himself. So from the word go, Satan wants to kill him here. Now, he can't do it. He tries. And God prevents it. And Joseph and the family escape. But all through the life of Jesus, Satan was trying to kill him. Um, he went to Nazareth when he was 30, soon after he got baptised. Do you remember, he spoke in the synagogue and they dragged him up to the top of the cliff to throw him off. All the time, Satan trying to kill him. And then eventually, what he tried so hard to do here, but couldn't do, and tried on numerous occasions afterwards, but failed every time, eventually, Satan succeeded and he got Jesus nailed to the cross. And what he'd been trying to do, for years and years and years, he succeeded in, he killed him. But, as he did so, discovered that in killing him, he destroyed himself. Because it was God's will that Jesus should die at that point. And so you see the spiritual warfare here. You see Satan trying to counter what God is doing. And yet, at the end of the day, everything that Satan does, rather than thwart God, is actually doing his will for him. So, in the end, Satan actually, as it were, killed himself. I mean, God gave Satan just enough rope to hang himself with. And that's the way that spiritual warfare works. But can you see behind Herod and everything, it was Satan. Our battle isn't with flesh and blood, it's with the principalities and powers. In heavenly places, it's with Satan and the demons. Right, okay. Now we continue in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So here you've got out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt, I called my son. So he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, because Archelaus weren't much better than his father. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now this is quite interesting. Here, Matthew says, 
The reason that Jesus grew up there was that in accordance with um, the Old Testament, he'd be called a Nazarene. And yet the point is, there is not one prophecy in the Old Testament that says that. It's not there, it's not in the Old Testament. Now what on earth is going on here? Well, at the time of Jesus, um, there were certain areas that the Jews really looked down on, even in Israel, and Nazareth was the pits. We might laugh and joke and say Nisdenes, but Nazareth, as far as Israel was concerned, was the absolute pits. The Jews did not like it at all. Now if you just go to John, John's Gospel, and just find um, chapter 1, and in verse 46, And this is when Philip goes and tells Nathanael that he's found the Christ. And, um, and he tells him where he comes from. And Nathanael said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Mm. See, and Nathanael needed to be convinced that Jesus was who he said he was because of where he came from. Now then, therefore, Nazareth became a synonym for being despised. So if you were a Nazarene, you were despised, rather like being called a leper. And Jesus was despised and rejected by men. All the prophets prophesied that he was going to be despised. Therefore he was a Nazarene, because that is what the word came to mean in the actual um, time of Jesus. So that's, that's quite interesting. So now we've got Jesus um, growing up in Nazareth. And then to just end it, to complete the story, go back into Luke. This is 12 years later now, but we'll just, um, you know, sort of do it because Luke chapter 2, because then we'll have covered everything prior to Jesus actually being baptised and starting his ministry. Uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. So Joseph is still alive at this point. Right? When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. When you were 12 years old as a Jew, you were considered accountable under the law, that, that, that you began your religious life as an individual, you know, like, person. Um, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. You know, this thing about Jesus, that's some kind of perfect childhood, he didn't. I mean, they forgot that they left him behind. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. So they've travelled home for a day, then they've travelled back to Jerusalem for a day and they've been a whole day looking for him. So after three days they actually find him, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to him. 
but his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favour with God and men. And we can see here with Jesus being 12 years old, that there, there was something very special about him. Already he was realising who he was. And what is so interesting here, because Jesus was actually using this occasion to say something to them. I mean, you know, it says that they did not understand what he was saying to them. Because Mary said to him, your father and I have been searching for you. Now, the important thing to realise, Joseph was only his adopted father. Now, look at Jesus' reply. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So can you see that? Mary said, your father and I have been looking for you. And here Jesus is saying, I've been in my father's house. Jesus is saying, no, Joseph isn't my father. God is my father. I mean, Joseph was his adopted father, but Jesus knew who his real father. Because if you're adopted, your real father is someone else. And Jesus was adopted but he knew who his father was. It was God in heaven. And so here, he's making absolutely clear to Mary and Joseph who he was. Everything that they'd heard from Simeon and Anna and the shepherds and the angels 12 years earlier, in a sense, here's Jesus saying, remember that, God is my father, not Joseph. And, and so here we can see that Jesus, who had understanding that amazed all the rabbis in the temple and all the priests, Jesus, even by this time, I am sure, knew who he was and what he had come to do. And, um, and just so you're aware of it, it's, it's after this point that Joseph is never heard of again. I mean, now the Gospels skip from here and they go on to when Jesus is 30. Alright, so there's absolute silence. We've got his birth and, you know, up to the escape from Egypt. Then we've got this one story when he was 12 and then absolute silence again until he's actually baptised. And uh, But Joseph isn't heard of again, so it seems likely that Joseph died uh, sometime soon after this. Okay, right, well, there you have the, the nativity, the, the story of Christmas. And um, I think that, 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 that what we'll possibly do, uh, possibly do as a separate study, because uh, there's not time to do it now, um, is to actually, having looked at the story, the history, that to actually look at, if you like, the theology behind it to actually look at what the Bible says is actually going on here. We've seen the story, Jesus is born, Messiah has come into the world. But next time, we'll possibly have a look at the theology that lies behind it, or the doctrine, if you like. What the Bible teaching teaches was actually transpiring that day when a little baby ended up sleeping in a trough, because <laughs> that's what it was, in a stable. So we'll, we'll leave it there.